In the city of Philadelphia, approximately 5,000 children are separated from their families and living in the foster care system at any given time. However, discussion about the well-being of these children, as well as the ethics of removing children from their homes, are rarely discussed in media and politics. My name is Allie Lamb, and I'm a senior studying communication and social influence at Temple University. I'm here today with Professor Sarah Katz, a scholar in family law and expert in the child welfare system. We're here today to discuss the child welfare system in Philadelphia and explore the ethical issues behind it all. Hi, Allie. I'm so glad Hi. to be here with you. Um, I am uh, I'm Sarah Katz. I'm a clinical professor of law at Temple's Beasley School of Law. Um, at the law school, I direct something called the Family Law Litigation Clinic, which is a class where my students take a seminar, and then as part of the work of the class, they are representing real clients in Philadelphia Family Court and in, a, in an array of family court matters. Um, this is my 12th year teaching at Temple, and uh, I really love what I do, and I'm also really excited about this new project that I'm working on. And I know you spent time yourself directly representing people within the system before kind of starting this project and everything, um, and directly representing parents as a supervising attorney. So I just kind of wanted to talk about that background and what that was like. Sure. So um, I gra graduated law school over 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and when I started my legal career, I started out as an attorney in the Family Advocacy Unit at Community Legal Services here in Philadelphia, which is the largest legal services provider in New York. And what a, a legal services organization is, is a nonprofit that provides free legal services to folks that can't afford an attorney. My role there is that I was a parent defense attorney. I was I started as a staff attorney and then eventually became supervising attorney, representing parents who were being brought into court by the city's um, child protection agency, which in Philadelphia is called the Department of Human Services or DHS. Um, and so my job was to defend the parents in these civil actions that were being brought, um, where they either their children had either been removed to foster care and they were fighting to regain custody of them, or they were trying to keep their family together and prevent um, a removal to foster care. And so you've done a lot of work within the child welfare system itself through that. So I was wondering if you could give like a personal overview of what you think the system is like and how it functions. I'll start by just saying that I, th I think the term child welfare system is actually a bit of a misnomer. Actually, a lot of it, not even a bit, is a misnomer. Um, okay. The term that, that I use and many other um, scholars and, um, and individuals use is the family policing system or the family regulation system. This is a system that is set up to... Um, to surveil families, to um, often its primary intervention in families is to break them up and to remove kids into foster care. And while certainly there's this narrative that this is a system that is set up to protect kids, to save kids, that's certainly what the media often tries to tell us. Um, the reality is it's also a system that we've, we've made a policy choice as a society that the way we supposedly save kids is by intervening in their families and often breaking up their families and that causes a lot of harm as well. 
I mean, just to talk a little bit about how the system functions, I mean, one of the things to understand about the family policing system is that a lot of what happens is guided by federal law. So there is there's state law and, of course, there's city um, practice and policy. But really, there's quite a bit of federal law that guides what um, is expected to happen. So cases come into um, the family policing system because somebody calls in a report. We live in this society that has this sort of like see something, say something Mm -hmm. um, mentality. And because of federal law um, called CAPTA, the Child Abuse um, Treatment and Prevention Act, um, states are required to have in place a system of mandatory reporting. What that means is that the states are required to have a hotline that individuals can call who are obligated to report it if they suspect child abuse um, and in some situations child neglect. Every state's laws vary a little bit in terms of what must be reported and who is considered to be a mandatory reporter, somebody who's obligated to make those calls. But one of the problems is is that creates very much a, a culture where um, when families are vulnerable, when families are experiencing difficulties, if they ask for help, they can in fact be reported for abuse or neglect. Um, so it cre- and I think there are a few different problems with that. One is that um, it kind of creates a culture where Uh, Families are afraid to ask for help because they know they might end up um, involved with the family policing system. And two, for those that are in the helping roles, like a teacher, a doctor, a child care worker, um, they somewhat wash their hands of it. They sort of think, well, I've reported this. This is somebody else's problem now. What happens when a a, um, report is called in to the, the child abuse hotline is that if what is being described by the caller sounds like it it may be abuse or neglect on its face, DHS um, is obligated to go out and investigate that report. Um, and I think one thing that people don't think about a lot is just how invasive an investigation is. Some stranger shows up on your doorstep, um, demands to talk to your children by themselves, may demand to have children take their clothes off in order to see whether there's any bruises or problems um, with their body, may may seek to do a full assessment of the home. All of this is very invasive and pretty um, upsetting and traumatic for both the children and the parents or caregivers um, who are involved. Um, While many, many, actually the majority of reports received are not substantiated in any way, there's still a harm that happens even from that investigation. Um, If the investigation is unfounded, the case is closed, nothing further is, is supposed to happen. But again, as I said, I think some harm has already been done. Um, If the report is substantiated, then DHS may seek to be more involved in um, in that family. They may offer the family um, some kind of help or um, ask for there to be some kind of change in the caregiving arrangement um, of the family. For example, asking a, a parent or other caregiver to move out of the home, asking for a child to um, move in with perhaps other relatives or a family friend. Um, 
But DHS also has the power to remove children to foster care, and and they do that. Um, and uh, you know, at this point, there's uh, five thousand something children in foster care in Philadelphia at any given moment. So that's a lot of children. Yeah, I recently actually read a report that said that Philadelphia actually has the highest rate out of any city of removing children from the home. And when this happens, I know it does go to a pla- to a legal place where not only is there trauma in just the actual process of the child getting removed, there's also trauma in the trials that follow where the children and the parents have to go to court. And so that was kind of your role was going into court and defending these parents, right? Right. But you say something really, really important. We don't talk enough about the harm of removal. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been a push in some states to actually incorporate consideration of the harm of removal into the statutes. We don't have that in Pennsylvania. Um, But, you know, we've made a policy decision. um, And again, we being the society has made a policy decision that we are willing to cause a certain amount of harm to children in order to ostensibly protect them. But we don't really talk about that harm. We talk about, oh, we're protecting kids. Some kids need to be in foster care is often the narrative that's told, but we don't really talk about the harms that that causes to the child themselves, as well as um, to their adult caregivers. Often when I talk to parents that have experienced a removal, even if they successfully reunify with their children, Um, parents will often talk about how, like, you know, they were sent back a different child. The child is now more fearful, more distrusting, um, may, you know, may show signs of significant trauma as a result of their experiences, both of being removed as well as um, what they may have experienced in foster care. Um, And and so that there's something about that parent-child bond that has now been um, disrupted in a way that is incredibly harmful and difficult for the family. Um, I know one parent has described to me, like, my children came back broken. I've heard versions of that from parents over the years. Um, And so, you know, I think we have, I think it is time we take a close look at, at why we're doing that. Why, why is our primary intervention when things are um, difficult for a family to remove the child? Now that child that did get removed from the home is living with this experience of someone showing up on their doorstep one day, a stranger they don't know, and pulling their entire family apart and the essentially their entire life apart. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're put into foster care, you can get pulled from whatever school you're in. You don't have access to your siblings and your parents a lot of times. So I, I can definitely see how a child could come back home after this and have this distrust with the knowledge that someone could once again show up on their doorstep and crumble the family the family mm-hmm. system that they're living in. Right. And that, that distrust comes from a real lived experience. I mean, I've had even students I've taught at Temple tell me that they grew up in families that um, delayed or tried not to go to the doctor because um, they their parents were always fearful that something would be you know misconstrued and called in and um, that they could end up having their family torn apart and so um, you hear story after story of families 
not seeking help that they might need in order to um, try to prevent that kind of breakup of the family. And that, again, comes back to this question of, of what are we doing here, right? Like, are we doing anything to protect kids? Because as much as we have this system of mandatory reports and investigations and removal, the rates of um, child maltreatment have have maintained relatively consistent over the years. So we're not necessarily solving the problem of child maltreatment. Um, kids getting harmed is a real issue, right? And so we need to kind of do a deeper dive in looking at um, how do we better support families to both prevent maltreatment, but also to prevent the harms that, that the system can bring. I feel like when we remove these children from their homes, and cause more trauma in hopes of almost like saving the kid. I feel like we also aren't really looking at the abuse and maltreatment that can happen in the foster care system when children are moved to that. Well, that's another another whole thing. We have this notion, again, we, we spin a narrative that foster care is a safe place for kids. And we know concretely, we have, we have strong evidence that that's not the case. Um, Kids are maltreated in foster care at rates that are disturbingly high. Um, kids get moved around in the foster care system a lot from placement to placement. And those those disruptions in the child's stability um, cause additional harms, additional trauma. Um, we also know that for kids who grow up in foster care and age out of the foster care system, um, that the statistics are basically horrible, right? We know that um, kids who age out of foster care are more likely to come in contact with the criminal justice system, more likely to end up um, without a permanent home, more likely um, you know, to have disrupted attachments to, um, to family, to support systems, um, less likely to go to college, right? So um, we are we aren't setting kids up for success by involving them with this system. We actually are creating a whole new set of barriers. You, I know, advocate for um, trauma-informed legal advocacy once children are being removed from their home. And so I would like to hear more about like what that means and what that looks yeah. like. So trauma-informed practice or trauma-informed legal practice is something that I was introduced to very early in my career um, it, as, a, as a parent defense attorney. And it really deeply influenced my approach to working with clients. Um, really, really what trauma-informed advocacy uh, teaches us to do, it's a practice, right? Which it, it teaches us to... to to meet an individual and instead of approaching it from what's wrong with you, to say, what, what happened to you? What, what got us here? Um, so to make that concrete, you know, I would be assigned a new client who'd been brought into court by DHS because there were allegations of substance use, right? And um, a, no, a non-trauma-informed practice would be to just say, well, why are you using the drugs, right? Stop using the drugs. That, you know... Um, a trauma-informed practice would be to really talk to the client and hear their story from their perspective. What what got us here? There's a huge link between um, trauma and substance abuse, particularly for women. Um, links between substance use and childhood physical and sexual abuse. Links between substance abuse and experiencing 
intimate partner violence or sexual violence, um, right? And so inevitably, if I really stopped and slowed down and looked at an individual um, as a person with their own perspective um, and their own history of what got them here, I actually would better to understand where we were and then maybe would better understand um, a, um, a, an approach to, to helping them. Because part of trauma-informed practice is also empowering the client to be able to, to say, here's what will help me in this situation. So, I mean, I could talk about trauma-informed practice for a really long time. <laughs> I think one thing that's sort of missing historically from the way we think about trauma-informed practice is really taking into account the degree to which the systems that um, that we as lawyers are part of um, are causing the harm, are causing the trauma. And so, um, although I've been you know, studying and writing about and researching trauma-informed practice um, now for uh, for quite a while. <laughs> um, I really, I look back at some of the work that I've done and I don't think that we have taken into an account enough of um, the very, the ways in which the court system, the way in which lawyers, the way in which the social work profession is actually responsible causing the trauma as opposed to looking at it as um, just the trauma that the trauma experiences that people bring with them into those systems. We need to look more closely at the trauma that the systems are causing. Would it then be correct to say that part of the issue is that the system we currently have in place is looking too much into individual like instances rather than the entire person? I think that the real problem is, is that we've, um, we, <laughs> and I say that, you know, we as the legal profession, as judges, as social workers, we think we have the answers for families. We have a system that allows DHS to haul a family into court, make decisions about what the, how that family will look, right? Whether a child will remain at home or not, whether certain adults can remain in the home or not how often those family members will interact with each other. But also, we're very prescriptive about what we, th we think will help that family. In the child welfare system, particularly in the court system, there's an unbelievable emphasis on this notion of compliance. You'll get your kids back if you do the following things. You need to do a parenting class, a drug treatment uh, program, an anger management class, whatever. It's often a sort of cookie cutter array of services that are offered to families. And if you really stop and talk to families, families will tell you, this isn't what I need. This isn't. And so really we need to flip things on its head and, and, and empower families to say, here's what would actually help. What I need help with is resolving um, the difficulties I'm having with my landlord so that um, my house is not infested with... Um, you know, insects or rodents. Um, what I really need is help with a, with obtaining affordable childcare so that I can work and provide for my family. Um, and so we have this total mismatch in terms of sort of um, the system offering help that's completely disconnected from the kind of help that families are really asking to receive. I think based on that, like we're definitely neglecting to provide these families with 
actual resources. So there's a law. Um, we talked a little bit about CAPTA, which sort of encompasses a lot mm -hmm. of the, the system of mandatory reporting. But another very important federal law that really drives the current system that we have is something called the Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997. So this has obviously been law for quite some time. But what the Adoption and Safe Families Act um, set out to address is there was a lot of attention brought around um, the fact that some kids would stay in foster care for very long periods of time. Um, and so uh, Congress, in its lack of wisdom from my perspective, um, entered this law that one of the major effects of the Adoption and Safe Families Act is that it says that if a child has been in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months, the state is mandated to move to terminate the parents' rights, uh, make the child available to be adopted. So there's this notion behind this law that, you know what, if parents can't get it together in this very limited period of time, then we're going to prioritize getting this child new parents. There's a really flawed premise behind that law um, because, of course, kids don't forget their parents. Um, there's a lot of increasing literature that shows how deeply traumatic that approach is um, for children. Um, I've been really actually deeply influenced by um, the writings of adoptees themselves that talk about adoption itself as, as trauma. Um, but the other problem with that law is that it's creating this artificial timeline. Okay, you've got 15 months, you know, if your child is removed today, you have 15 months to turn this around. But the system isn't really, again, providing the help that families need. And so problems that may have um, developed over, over generations, actually, but certainly over, you know, over decades, over years, um, a parent is now being asked to sort of turn it around on a dime, but not really being asked what would really help us turn it around. And so um, there's sort of, in my mind, an inherent flaw in that, um, in that law. Um, there is increasingly calls to um, actually get rid, to repeal AFSA, AFSA and replace it with, with different law. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important effort because I think a lot of harm is done by this overemphasis on adoption and the lack of help. I will say that isn't something I've ever even heard of before. And the fact that someone can be expected to flip their entire life around in just a little bit over a year when, again, like looking back at your landlord example from earlier, if you only have 15 months to like fix something and you're not being provided with resources to do it, and you can't get it fixed in time in the 15 months, it feels really unethical to then just remove all parental rights because of a lot of times things that the person may not even have control over. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is um, just the fact that the vast majority of cases that come into dependency court involve allegations of neglect. So I think if we read the news, if we read the popular narrative um, about the child, child welfare system, the family policing system, um, then we assume that this is a system filled with bad parents who don't deserve their children, right? And they must have done something horrible to their child. The reality is only 15% of the cases in the system involve allegations of abuse. 
Um, and so it's the minority of the cases that are coming in that involve any kind of allegation of physical abuse, of sexual abuse. Um, the vast majority of those cases are the neglect cases. And the problem with that is that the definition of neglect is very mushy and it can easily be confused with just simply poverty, right? Because neglect really means failing to provide some essential thing for your child, right? But the the sort of central premise of the system is if you're failing to provide an essential thing to your child, that that must be your fault, right? You're failing mm -hmm. to provide them with an appropriate living environment. Well, we don't have enough affordable housing in this country, right? It's hard to access affordable housing. Um, you're failing to provide the child medical care, but it's hard to access high quality and consistent medical care in this country. And so too often cases that are coming in with allegations of neglect are in fact really situations of poverty. Um, so again, coming back to what would help, what would help poverty? What would help poverty is giving families actual resources, right? Um, there are, one of the things I've been so encouraged by is there are a number of pilot programs happening nationally um, that are look that are looking at the impact of giving a guaranteed basic income to families to low income families, um, which I think you know we're starting to see evidence that that will reduce the likelihood that a child is entering the system. Right, just actual money to families to help. Um, stabilize them and support them. Again, access to childcare, access to um, affordable and adequate housing, um, to mental health care, to health care. Um, and so those are the things that families are asking for that they need. They don't need a system to come in and tell them that they're bad because they're poor. That also kind of takes into consideration, like, if a family living in poverty, the parent has to work two, three jobs just to keep a living situation. How does that parent have time to take the child for medical care or these other things when they have to work constantly just to keep a living situation? So it also isn't taking into account what the parent is doing to keep their child safe and keep right. a stable situation. It only, I feel like, looks at what the parent isn't doing because they're not able to do that. Yeah, I mean, again, this is sort of a broader thing, but we, um, we you know, we have this sort of notion in, in American society, this up by the bootstraps, that, you know, poverty is somehow a personal flaw, a personal failing. But the reality is, we, you know, we have the capacity to address our nation's poverty issues. We just choose not to put our resources there. And so when we frame the United States as like a meritocracy, that also really just, that takes out any chance to give resources to people who are at a systemic disadvantage as well. Because um, there are also a lot of systemic disparities that we see, particularly in this system. And I know that's part of what... Um, the project you're working on, the Stonely Foundation, right. is aiming to address. And so I'm wondering, like, what kind of your role in that foundation is and what the foundation is doing to address these systemic issues. 
So the Stoney Foundation is local here in Philadelphia and funds projects that are meant to enhance the quality of life of, of youth in our society. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very broad mission. Um, and they fund um, projects, fellowships in a variety of different areas, not just the law, but also, you know, public health and medicine and social work and um, many different areas. Um, yeah, I don't think we we've quite talked enough about the um, the racial impact of the of the system, which I'll then explain what my project has to do with that. But um, a drastically disproportionate number of black and brown children are involved in the child welfare system as compared to their white counterparts. So going back to some of the things we we talked about, um, you know, over fifty percent of black children will experience a child welfare investigation by their 18th birthday, which is nearly double the wow. rate for white kids. Um, nearly 10% of black children will be removed from their parents and placed in foster care, which is double the rate for white kids. Um, and one in every 41 black children nationally will have their parents' rights legally terminated. In Philadelphia, 65% of the children involved in dependency court, which is the kind of court that child welfare cases come to, are black, even though black children are only 43% of the population here um, in Philadelphia. The family policing system has a systemic racism problem. These aren't, um, these numbers, you know, sort of speak for themselves in terms of the impact that, um, that, uh, the system is having on black and brown families. Um, the project that the Stoney Foundation has funded me to do is really looking more closely at how we teach law students in particular, because that's what I do, um, about these systems in critical ways. Um, and so some of that is, again, I've kind of mentioned a couple times the notion of kind of we, the collective we, taking ownership of um, the harms that the system is causing. And certainly the, the legal system, the legal profession is part of that. We are responsible for promoting this narrative that these laws exist to save children, to protect children. Um, and the lived experience of the families impacted by those laws says otherwise. And so really what my project is about is how do we incorporate the lived experience of of kids, of parents, of um, other family members into the way we teach the law of child protection. Um, how do we teach the next generation of lawyers to think critically about these systems and be, um, be part of the solution as, as opposed to part of the problem? So, you know, at this point in my career, I am, I am concerned um, and really grappling with to what extent the legal profession is responsible for the harms that the system causes. Um, certainly the law shows up in many, many, you know, we, we have laws that govern these systems. We bring families in before a judge. That is, you know, judges are lawyers. Um, in child welfare court and dependency court, everyone gets an attorney. So the city agency has an attorney, the parents have attorneys, the children have attorneys. but. To what extent are we just perpetuating the same problems year after year, generation after generation? And so really my project is about thinking about new ways to, um, to teach future lawyers to think critically about these systems and to lawyer in different ways that, um, 
disrupt these systems and actually tear down these systems is really my my goal i don't i don't see these as the the system as it stands as something worth maintaining um so i am absolutely what would be called a child welfare abolitionist i believe that we should um be dismantling the system and shifting resources elsewhere and so in that shifting of resources that would come with dismantling this system that is at its core just further harming children and causing further racial disparities what what do you think that shift could kind of potentially look like well i think it's moving away from this notion of surveillance and toward actual help um so uh one incredible act activist who's a hero of mine joyce mcmillan who is um a parent who experienced the system um herself as a parent but she has um, built an incredible grassroots advocacy organization in New York that focuses on um, reducing the harms of the system and and uh, and helping um, families that are experiencing the system. But Joyce talks about a manda mandated support rather than mandated reporting, right? So um, the notion that how do we how do we shift away some of the things I've already talked to you about that I I think families are saying they need. Um, how do we shift the extraordinary resources of the child welfare system into actual tangent, like, uh, you know, palpable support to families? I can't tell you how many parents I represented over the years who would say, say to me, you know, if they would just give me that stipend that they're giving the foster parent to take care of my child, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so really beginning to think about, um, about how do we get actual help into the hands of families. Absolutely. And I also, I read um, one of, an interview that you did prior and something that really stood out to me in that was when you highlighted the importance of seeing people as a lived expert, you said, instead of just a client. Yeah. And so I think that is also really important in kind of seeing how can we help people rather than oh, this is just another client, and it almost feels dehumanizing to just see them as just another number in the system and be like, okay, I'm going to get over this case and move on to the next one. Yeah. So I really liked your idea of seeing these people as lived experts. Yeah, and certainly it's not an idea that I can take claim um, for at all. I think we're seeing nationally so many different examples of folks that have been impacted by the system, speaking up, organizing, um, working as peer advocates within legal organizations, um, working at, you know, to form grassroots organizing and, and other organizations to accomplish you know, legislative change, policy change, um, to, to directly help families. Um, and, um, you know, really what I say is that the, you know, the most important things I've learned about the harms of the family policing system, I have learned from people who have experienced it. Right. I have had the benefit of, you know, and privilege of tremendous education, of training um, and experience. But I didn't learn the things I know about the system in a book uh, or in a classroom. Um, I learned it from interacting with the people who um, who are experiencing the system, experiencing the harms of the system. Um, and I. I think it's really time for a shift where 
we stop as as a legal profession, and I think there's a different conversation to be had about the social work profession um, as well, but as a legal profession to really uh, cede some of our power and really listen to those that are being impacted by by these laws. Do you think, um, since again, you you didn't learn this through reading books or like your classes and stuff, you learned it through real experience. And so do you think that, you know, when educating future lawyers and people who will be working with the system in the future, that providing more case studies or like field experience and things like that would be a beneficial tool? Or do you think that could potentially cause more harm? Um, No, I mean, that's what clinical legal education is all about. You, um, you know, it's very similar to the way we train doctors by having them work in hospitals and, you know, in medical practice and learn how to do what they do by actually practicing it under the supervision of other doctors. That's really what clinical legal education looks like. It means students stepping into the role of an attorney and taking on... um, you know, the role of an attorney and helping someone. And, you know, there are lots of ways in which attorneys um, can function. They can be providing direct legal representation. Um, But attorneys do policy advocacy, too. And so I really, um, I, I would really like to further engage our law students in doing not just the direct representation of families engaged with, um, the child welfare system and the family court system, but also working alongside impacted folks to come up with the policy solutions that'll make things better. Okay, and I know also the new way of like educating people and stuff. Uh, I read that you're working to develop legal scholarship and practice guides to assist professors and also attorneys. So do you think that could kind of tie in to this system of education that we have going now? Yeah, so I mean, some of the ultimate goals of of the fellowship that I have in the Stonely Foundation right now are one, for me to create a new clinic here at Temple Law School, um, and two, to produce, you know, materials that would help influence the way law, this area of the law is taught and practiced. Um, To do that, I am doing research right now where I will be interviewing um, folks with lived experience of of the family policing system um, who are are partnering with lawyers to do this work of systemic change. Um, And a lot of what I'm interested in with that research is how can lawyers effectively work with lived experts? How do we do this right? How might we mess this up? Right. Lawyers tend to have big egos and we tend to think we have all the answers or we should be able to come up with all of the answers. Um, And so when I said before, like that important piece of seeding some of our power, right, like a big piece of that is really learning how to listen and listen to the listen to what the community is telling us that they need rather than assuming we have um, the answers or know what's what's best. and that's really something that's central um, to, you know, the, to my approach and to most approaches to clinical legal education. It's called, you know, client-centered representation, but really letting the client be the one who, um, who drives the bus. And I think that needs to happen both in individual representation, but also in systemic advocacy. 
And so that's what your new law school clinic would take on, essentially? That's that's my hope. It, it I'm envisioning, and some of it is my research will help inform what sort of what sort of form the new clinic um, ends up taking. But my hope or what I'm imagining is a clinic where students are engaging both in directly representing families that are experiencing the family's leasing system in various ways, as well as um, doing some systemic advocacy to, um, to change and hopefully dismantle that system. Do you have any closing remarks or any more points about the um, law school clinic? That, and the foundation that you would like to discuss? Um, I just would encourage if this, you know, if this discussion has interested your listeners and you want to learn more, there's lots of incredible writing and scholarship available to learn more. Um, a great starting place is Professor Dorothy Roberts' book, Torn Apart, which came out last year, um, which talks specifically about the racialized harms of um, the system. Another of my scholarly and activist heroes is Alan Detloff, who's a social work professor who recently published a book um, about tracing the history of the child welfare system in this country back to slavery and the focus on family separation. That was actually a, 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 a crucial component of the way slavery functioned. And um, he traces uh, sort of the roots of our modern system from slavery right through to the present. Um, so Alan's book is incredible. And then Professor Jane Spinak, uh, who wrote a, a, a brand new book that just came out a couple months ago called The End of Family Court, where she's calling for the abolishment of family court. Um, it's a compelling read and definitely something I would encourage listeners um, to check out. There's plenty more, but those are a good start in terms of um, places to learn more. I would like to give a big thanks to Professor Sarah Katz for joining us and sharing her expertise. All sources used will be linked in the description of the episode. Again, this is Allie Lamb. Thanks for listening.